you have your Bibles and want to follow along, it's a little different with a systematic series like this where we're not going through first five verse, but if you want to, we'll hit fairly soon, 1 Corinthians 15.42, I think, um, in a little bit. Um, one of the things about these types of sermons is you want to be biblical, obviously, and we're going to be biblical today. This, these are, uh, it's going to be about what is the character and, and nature of God. I think I've got 30 scripture references today. Uh, so, sorry, I couldn't get in more, but you only give me a half hour. So, uh, we're going to hit it pretty, what is, the, what, what is God like? You know, the one we're doing, the essence, the greatness, the goodness, as we talked about with the kids. And, uh, Sermon outlines. Uh, when I first started preaching, I just kind of did it. You know, we didn't do any outlines, but then we decided to put an outline in, and people seemed to like it, and so we kept them in there. And especially a series like this, it might be those are there for you because um, I know uh, I've been on the other side for many years, um, and it's it, you know where else do you sit still other than your school kids that are? It's now out, right? School's out for everybody. Yay! Parents are like. Yay. <laughs> but you don't sit still, you know, so you, we do stuff to try to at least keep your, your interest, and hopefully the, the material itself will, will keep you. But I know it's tough. I, I was looking back there and seeing uh, some of the families have little kids, and I remember being there, you know. It's like you, you leave worship, and you're kind of like, well, what was that about? <laughs> Yeah, but you, you, you do, that's the other reason for the sermon outline, I guess you could read it later, but just getting them there makes a difference. I think, you know, you'll have to ask my kids, but uh, um, sometimes it's just pure obedience, but that's okay, and we're just so glad you're here. Um, I'm sorry, guys, that have little kids, but there is a changing table in the bathroom for the men. Um, thought I'd let you know, doesn't have to be the women, uh, so, uh, uh, so men, take them into the men's bathroom if you're going to change them. But, uh, but we're going to look at the essence of God to start off, a, a character. And the first thing that you hear, and you get this in John 4 where, where Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman, that God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. God is spirit. Well, what do we mean by that? It doesn't say he's spiritual, which is a little bit different word. It says he's spirit. It means he's real, but he's not physical. Now, I, I have no idea, well, I don't have any idea, but you could make a case, right? You know, that when people are truly worshiping Yahweh, that maybe angels show up. So I wonder if there's any here. <laughs> I, I mean, I don't know. And, 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 and I've never seen one. Maybe you have. It's not common, not even common in the Bible. But that God exists, and that, that's part of the problem. And we've talked about that as we go through this worldview series. Again, what's a worldview? A worldview is how you look at the world, but a Christian worldview is thinking like Jesus. Well, we got to know what Jesus is like first, and that's what we're kind of doing here with figuring out what God is like and what Yahweh is like. But we know he's real. He's just not physical. And I know there's ideologies out there that say that doesn't make any sense, but did you know your soul and your mind are not physical? And this really isn't hard to show. I mean, every idea starts out as non-physical. Yeah, I know in the comics it's a light bulb. But there's really, that's just a metaphor. But think about, well, anything. Where is that thought? Here, I'll give you, think about a light bulb. I'm thinking about those warm, 
incandescent bulbs that are illegal now. Or the LED, you can move down temperature and kind of warm. But, you know, is that, if you opened up my head, which I'm not recommending, would you find that light bulb? Well, no, it's non-physical. It's not even really hard. You know, we all know that. Uh, emotions are non-physical. There's a connection to the brain and the mind, but they're not the same. And that's, Plato said that. Not the stuff you play with. The, the, so the Socrates, Aristotle, Plato guys. One of those philosophers. I mean, this isn't just Christians that believe this, but it's very clear. God in his essence is spirit. And humans are by nature created as body-soul combinations. We get this back in Genesis. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Notice he was already physical, but he wasn't a living creature yet. He had to have the breath. And I know maybe on a bad day, you can smell my breath, but you can't see my breath unless it's freezing. It's not freezing. But, you, you know, the wind blows where it will. Spirit. Now, I don't know if you knew that, but the word ruach in Hebrew and pneumata in Greek is the word for both breath and spirit. Something we can't see. Jesus even says that when he's talking to Nicodemus. You know, the spirit and the wind blows where it will. You do not see it, but you can see its effects. And that's kind of a metaphor for that. So, but Yahweh, the one true God who we just sang about, I love that song, because sometimes I wonder, because sometimes when you say God, it just kind of sits there. What God are you talking about? If you went out today somewhere and said to somebody, do you believe in God? And they said, yes, what should your next question be? What do you mean by that? You know, what, which God are you talking about? Because a lot of people could say yes, and they weren't talking about Yahweh. So we got to be specific here a little bit. Yahweh by nature is non-physical spirit. And sometimes we have trouble with that. I have trouble with that. I mean, because I'm not non-physical spirit alone. Now, what about Jesus? Well, we get that in John 1.14. I'll have it up there. So that's the 30th one if you, for you math majors that are counting. Um, John 1.14 says that, that he became spirit. The son became flesh and dwelt among us. He was already spirit. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. Became spirit. He added humanity. Why? Well, that's what the gospel is about, right? What we just sang about. Became the lamb. Became the one uh, to offer himself. And I know this is a little flippant to say, but I'm going to say it anyway. It would have really been hard to kill Jesus if he was only spirit. I mean, you've seen the ghosts and stuff, right? Anybody ever, I mean, what do you do? What do they do when they try to punch Casper? <laughs> you know, you can't do it. And it, kind of that way, I mean, I know that's a little weird to think about it, but why did he came to flesh so he could die? I mean, he, not just so we could get killed, but so we could have this, the once offered and final sacrifice for our sins. It's not just death. But when a person dies... The fallen physical body dies, but the soul spirit, the real non-physical part, lives on. And I hope we believe that, right? And here's some scriptures. We're gonna, all this should be backed up by scripture, obviously. Back in Luke 16, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's side. Well, I'm, I, I'm pretty sure they probably buried the poor man. But I think, I thought he was by Abraham's side. Hmm. Something's there. And the rich man also died and was buried. So if you didn't wonder, he was buried. 
And in Hades being, and he didn't get buried in Hades. This isn't, he, he lifted up and his eyes, you know, we're not talking about physical eyes, but ability to see, obviously, in a spiritual, and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. Now, Jesus doesn't get into the metaphysics of this and all that, and we don't have to either, but that it's true. Think about this, you know, Jesus on the cross. If he, we know he quoted Psalm 22. He also quoted Psalm 31, uh, verse 5, which was a prayer that almost every little boy or girl, uh, Jewish and probably Jewish men and women, prayed this. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Right before you die. Now we have that now. It's what, now I lay me down to sleep. And you can go on. You can get it. It's kind of the same thing. I'm going to sleep. I'm not going to be cognitive into your hands. I commit my, well, Jesus says this on the cross. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. But they buried his body, didn't they? So he breathed his last, you know, the, that, that, that this is something, and, and we struggle with this. It's hard to understand God if we don't understand ourselves sometimes. And this is a good one from 2 Corinthians. Yes, we are of good courage, Paul says, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. That is a good verse to remember for any funeral, anytime somebody dies in the Lord, this is what the promise is. But that's not the end, right? And we all have loved ones that are spirit. Can you imagine that? Me neither. <laughs> it's hard, isn't it? Kind of think about how that would work. I mean, if you get to eat, you know, I, I don't know. It's a, it's not, that's a whole rabbit trail. I always have, should have somebody in here with a white flag saying, rabbit trail, don't go there. It's going to be different in Jesus' second coming when the heaven and earth will be remade and united, you can see that in Revelation 21 if you read it, and those who truly follow Jesus will receive immortal, glorified, spirit-driven, that's spiritual, bodies. And you get this from 1 Corinthians 42, 15, 42 through 56. So you want to, this is really cool. This is after it's all over. This hasn't happened yet. Tell anybody. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. He's talk, before that, he talked about the difference of nature of different things. And he said, what is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body. There's also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit, but it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also there who are also the dust. And that is man in heaven, so also are those who are in heaven. Just as we have been born the image of man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man from heaven. I tell you this, believers, Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. Now, this is cool. It's almost always true in the New Testament. I'm going to tell you a mystery. So after you hear it, it's no longer a mystery. This is the mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we shall be changed for this perishable body must be put on an imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. 
when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's pretty good stuff. <laughs> it's something to look forward to. And then it ends in 58. Therefore, my beloved believers, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Even if you come to worship and your kid won't shut up, it's still not in vain because it's obedient. It's what God wants us to do. So we go back to this body-soul combination intended prior to the fall with one major difference. Our new nature will not have an ability to sin. Isn't that cool? That's the new heaven and the new earth. We'll be like the angels, as Jesus said, the holy ones. This is cool stuff. Because people say, well, won't it be boring? We won't have a choice to do anything. Well, you'll have a choice to do anything you want, but you won't sin because your nature will be changed. You get a little of that when you get redeemed, right? We have an ability to not sin. But now, when this happens, you won't have the ability to sin. That, that's really cool stuff. And that's why I've got a bucket list. But I'm going to wait till then. I mean, I, I think it'd be cool to hang glide. I think it'd be cool to climb some of those real tough mountains. But I'm going to wait till then when I don't have this body that keeps deteriorating. So bucket lists are cool, but I'm going to wait and do it later. So you might call me a wuss, and I probably am, but I'm waiting. I think, that, I think that's wise. So the other one, too, of his essence, God is eternally alive. He always existed. He always will exist. Because when God said to Moses in the burning bush, he uses that term that we get the term Yahweh out, or, and you can translate it into Jehovah. Yahweh is just essentially the root word for existence in Hebrew. You could translate, I, I, I have always been who I've always been, and I will always be who I always will be. In the beginning was God. He's already there. You know, you start getting this essence stuff, and you're like, oh, I see, I see. This is, this is why I'm supposed to bow down before him, because he's worthy. And then I am the Alpha and Omega, Omega, says the Lord God, who was and who is and who is to come, the Almighty. You know, it's a kind of the, that's kind of your Yahweh word in, in Greek. Uh, so that's kind of the essence. Now, the greatness of God, what he's like, different than us. He has unlimited knowledge. You get this in Isaiah, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there's none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not done. Saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all of my purposes. He also has unmatched power. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. I'm God Almighty. You probably know what, you probably heard this term. The word for God, just the generic Hebrew word is El. And Almighty is Shaddai. So you probably heard El Shaddai. You want me to sing it for you? Yeah. Uh, 
I remember listening to that many times. Uh, Amy Grant made that pretty famous. So he's almighty. He's also uh, the Lord God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me, he says in Jeremiah. So he's unmatched power. And he's not bound by time and space. You know, we don't experience this. This is the greatness of God. Am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not far away? Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth? Those are rhetorical questions. Yes, he does. So you might have heard this, you might not. So when we're talking about knowledge, we use these omni words, which is not a really poor made dodge back in the 70s. We had one of those. What were my parents thinking? It's like just one step up from the pacer. You guys all remember the bubble car, right? Yeah. Well, not all of you, because some of you are looking at me and it's like, what are these 80s and 70s you speak of? Aren't they still in the future? Yeah. Uh, we're in the roaring 20s. Did you know that? <laughs> Different words, right? But omni means all. And so we'll say that he's, you know, has all knowledge, is all-powerful and is all-present. But there's another way to look at that. It's just a, it's a Latin word uh, or Greek word. Unlimited. And I think that makes more sense. Because here's a question. We've had this in Bible studies, and you can, it's rhetorical or not. I don't care. See what you think. Is God everywhere? Now, you can get that from all-present, right? Omnipresence. He's everywhere. Is God in the heart of an unbeliever? Well, he's not there. Well, then he's not everywhere. Is God in hell? Well, I don't know. I don't really care at this point. But if you change that to unlimited, can he be there? Well, yeah, he can do what he wants. Can he go there? You know, he leaves, you know, you get those, and maybe that's somewhat anthropomorphic making us understand it, but he leaves the temple, you know, in Ezekiel, and he essentially rejects the people for disobedience and unfaithfulness. So I think if, for me, I like the second one. Anything that needs power, he can do. That's logically consistent. No, he cannot lift a rock. He can't make a rock too big for him to lift. That's just silly and somewhat dull. Read Proverbs 30, verse 2. Anyway, um, anything that makes sense, he's, he's, he's got all the power he needs, unlimited. Nobody's more power. And he can be anywhere he wants, and he can know anything he wants. Because we get that. Isn't it great that he takes our sin and forgets them? Now, I don't know if that's, we take that literally, but as far as it being counted against us. So for me, and if it doesn't help you, if you like all, go with all. But I like this, the fact that he is unlimited in knowledge, unlimited in power, and unlimited in his presence. It seems to make more sense to me, and it fits the Bible a little bit better. We don't have these weird questions. Well, you know, somebody says, well, God can't be a non-believer, so he's not all all present. It's like, well, to paraphrase Calvin, don't ask darn nonsense, I guess would be the way to go there. I mean, it's kind of silly. You just get it right. I like that second one better. He's personal. This is different. You know, in, in, in Islam, he's not personal. In Hinduism, everybody's personal because there's 330 million gods. He's, in fact, he's tried, which is kind of cool. He, uh, he interacts directly with people. He shows emotion uh, within the bounds of it being a good thing. Uh, and he relates information all the time. Uh, John, in John, in the upper room, we had this uh, a few months ago. 
Jesus talking, when the spirit of truth comes, now think about, he's tri-personal. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth and he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, Jesus says, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So there's a kind of a Trinitarian scripture. Why do we believe in the Trinity? Because we think the Bible imposes that on us. You would have never come up with this. I certainly, I wouldn't. But the Trinity is a solution, not a problem. It solves the Bible's revelation and makes sense out of it. And then we get his maybe even emotion in his relation of himself. So we have come to know that to believe the love that God has for us, God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. You know, love is just set there. You guys know that, right? You don't just, you, you can tell your wife you love her, but you probably should show it, right? And, and wives too, but seems like the other side is. But love requires an object, right? What do we call somebody who loves themselves? Narcissistic, right? Uh, Self-centered. So think, I don't know if this is a good one. This is a good little apologetic against people who think the Trinity is a problem. It's not. It's a solution. If God is love, if this is part of who he is, if he's not triune, he would have to create to love, wouldn't he? So he's kind of sitting around there like, man, this is boring. I think I'll create a bunch of stuff to love. Now, we don't get that in the Bible anywhere. Now, but if he is triune, his very nature can be love because the three persons of the Trinity can have a loving relationship with each other throughout eternity. So the Trinity actually fits into Scripture better because God can not only be love in the way he shows it, he can actually be loved by his very nature. So we get one point, and the Muslims still have zero. I think we got a lot more points than they do. But. So that God is Trinity is biblical. This is one of those things, the way I look at it now, our understanding is going to always be limited. I mean, have you ever done anything that you thought, well, why did I do that? Or am I the only one? You know, you think about how many times can you hit your head on the same cabinet? It's been there for 16 years. I think he'd remember that. And I do after the first time that day. <laughs> but we, we don't even completely understand ourselves. <laughs> I don't know why this came to me, but I'm going to go with it. How many of you have seen your small intestine? If you have, I'm really sorry. <laughs> but is it? You know, you know it's kind of there, but you don't really know what it looks like. What color is it? I don't know. We don't even know ourselves. And we're supposed to figure out an all-powerful, or we'll go with unlimited power, unlimited knowledge, unlimited presence, eternal, perfect being. We'll get him figured out, though. It's just silly. But the thing you don't want to do, and this is what I would always do with Scripture, I'd always do with God, it's not about getting to know everything about Him and stopping. It's about having a relationship and a connection with Him, just as it is. I hope you don't go to lunch today and say, what color is your large intestine or small intestine? I hope that's not how you try to get to know people. It's not a good opening line. 
maybe something like, where are you from? <laughs> I don't know, something easier. But when you, when you, what we're doing is we're trying to understand God. I don't know if I'll ever understand completely how the Trinity works, even when we get the spiritual bodies and the twinkling of an eye. Because it's not the point. It's not like, oh, now I've got it. See ya. You know, that doesn't work that way. It's about knowing him. And if somebody says, well, how could you believe in the Trinity? And I would say, because the Bible says it. That's about all you need. That's what's written. Do you completely understand it? No. So that's the greatness. Now we'll get to the goodness. We talked, this is a good one to end with, you know, it's the last. The goodness of God. Here's three good attributes of God. Now, remember, these aren't mutually exclusive. You know, he does this one, and then he does this one, and he does that one. These kind of work together, just like you. You're a sum of all your parts. Um, we don't, uh, hopefully you're not that way, where you have, you know, evil Fred, and then you have nice Fred, and sorry, Fred, I just saw you first. <laughs> you know, we're, it doesn't work that way. Um, we're, we're all of these, and so is God. And this is the one that I start with because the Bible starts with this one for the most part. God is holy. If you remember Isaiah, pretty good dude, nice uh, Jewish Torah follower. He uh, gets called by God in this way. He gets this vision, and he sees these seraphs calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, that's Yahweh. The whole earth is full of his glory. Holy, holy, holy. And they say that, and he sees. And you remember what Isaiah does? Does he's like, this is cool. Can I come up there? And then do that. Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. We say things that are blasphemous to you, is what he's saying there. And remember what what the remedy was? That one of the Sarahs flies and gets this burning coal. And I'm sure they're really hot here, but I'm thinking up there they're really, really hot. And touches his lips. It's, I think it's a picture of the cross to some extent. But it's the idea that now you can go and who will I send? You know, send me. And then after that he says, but nobody's going to listen. <laughs> so remember, back to kind of the kids and not always paid attention and all that kind of stuff. You're not going to be graded by God on how successful you are of getting other people to come to the faith. You're going to get graded by God by trying. Did you try? I'm not very good at that. I don't know. It must be. I mean, I'm such a nice guy. <laughs> what do they say? He's a nice guy if you don't get to know him. The, uh, I think when you, when you look at that, I mean, we just got to try. You try to do better. And, and I am getting a little bit better at it. But the thing you have to remember when you're trying to tell somebody about Jesus, it's going to take time for the most part. And if it doesn't take time, that's not because you did wonderful. It's because somebody probably else did wonderful. But this is the thing, you know, Isaiah is told to obediently go to a people who for the most part won't listen to him. But guess what? Here we are, May 30th, 2021, 2,700 years after Isaiah gave this and we're reading. Does it have an effect? I mean, I don't think, maybe Isaiah doesn't care what we're doing, but he might be up there going, see? <laughs> they didn't listen, but these guys are. But that's the thing, he's holy. In all of the Bible, this is the only attribute of God that's repeated three times. You know why they do that? They don't have exclamation points in Hebrew. 
They don't have punctuation in Hebrew. So when, remember when Jesus, and they don't have them in the Greek either. Remember when Jesus says, uh, truly, truly, verily, verily, I say unto you. It's, it's just an imperative. It's like, you know, truly, I say to you. It's the same thing here. This is like three. It's, this is holy is about as loud as you can say it. This is what, it's the holiest you can get. It's the thing. And we see this awesomeness of, of, of his holiness. And Isaiah senses that personal unworthiness. You see that every time. Remember when Jesus when, gave that great catch of fish to Peter? And before, he, when he just met him, it looks like. And you think Peter would say, hey, you know, let's, let's, let's get a contract going here. <laughs> this would be easy. I just kind of walk out. You go, you know, whatever. And what we need, you know. And, but what's he do? He gets on his knees before Jesus and says, Depart from me for an unclean man. He understands his unworthiness before a holy God. It's very much like Isaiah. Holy. What is holy? Well, the, the core word means morally pure and set apart. You shall be holy as I am holy, he says. You know, you shall be morally pure and you're set apart because you only worship me. You don't worship anything. God's holiness is associated with a lot of biblical words. And again, you're not going to figure it all out today. But you can figure some out today. Power, glory, transcendence, uniqueness, exclusiveness, pureness, dangerous. I think Isaiah got the dangerous part. The at, this attribute is key to understanding the others correctly. If, and this is one of the biggest problems in contemporary Christianity, especially in America, is we don't understand God's holiness. The rest of them won't make sense if you don't understand God's holiness. It's the key. If God is not holy, why do you need his grace? If God is just a schmuck on the bus, as the song said many years ago, then what do we need Jesus for? Holiness is the key. It's always the key. And it's how God presents himself when people see him. One thing I've noticed when people encounter God, and there's not that many times in the Bible when they encounter God in that real you know, burning bush type of stuff, one thing I first noticed is they're never bored. Does Isaiah seem bored here? Say, oh, there's something going on. Yeah. No, they're not bored. Now, they might be scared. <laughs> they feel a sense of unworthiness. You know why? Because they are. But you're not going to see that if you start with God's love. You've got to start with His holiness. But He is loving, isn't He? You don't stop at God's holiness. And remember, He defines what love is. We don't. What does it mean? Well, caring. He's a protector. He forgives. He accepts those who forget. He's patient with people and sacrifices himself. Greater love has no one than to give up his life for his friends. You know, that's, that's one thing on a person-to-person -person level, but what did Jesus get out of this? Personally, he had nothing. So it's completely self-sacrifice. In 1 John 3.16, a good one to remember, it kind of summarizes John 3.16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers, for the believers. So yeah, we, no, our, our, my death, your death is not going to save anybody from hell. But we give our lives for them because his life does. But see how that love, here's a holy God that's pure and doesn't need anybody. But yet, 
condescends, as Philippians says, and takes the form of a servant and offers himself to us for our benefit. Without the holiness, the love isn't as deep. We'll talk about grace in a couple weeks. He's faithful. He's reliable. It's kind of what I was talking with the goodness with the kids. You see, the, for the Lord does not change. He, he's not going to be sometimes one way and sometimes the other. And Hebrews 13 kind of says the same thing for Jesus. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Doesn't mean he doesn't act in different ways, but his essence never changes. And this 1 Corinthians, very early 1 Corinthians, I think this is really good. This is from the NLT. God will keep you strong to the end so that you will be free from all the blame on the day when our Lord Jesus Christ returns. God will do this, for he is faithful to do what he says, and he has invited you into partnership with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. One of the keys to being a good Christian and being a faithful Christian is understanding what God's promises are to you. Sometimes we think God has promised something to us, but he hasn't, and sometimes we forget something even more important he has, and then realizing that he's faithful to always keep those promises. And this is, you know, we talked about the gospel. Well, this is the heart of it. If you truly repent, he will forgive you every time. That is a surety. I don't know if he'll heal you. I don't know if he'll help you get that job. I don't know if he'll help you get, win that game. I don't know. You can ask. But if you come to him and seek him with a humble heart and repent, he will forgive you. That's the promises we need to remember. And if you're a believer and you know him and you're going through rough times, he will give you what you need. Lots of times that's from his word. Lots of times that's from his spirit. And lots of times that's from his church. Those are promises that are there. Knowing his promises and what he'll be faithful. And it's not, if he doesn't give us what we want, it's not because he's not faithful, it's because we're dull, right? I, I got it that time, I didn't say the other word. Um, so since Yahweh is holy, he's not going to eternally allow sin and evil to keep going. Remember, he was also patient. This is what he's doing right now. He allows it for a time because of his grace and love. And we see this in, in, in the... Gospel, first of all, in the middle of, you know, after John 3.16, you know, God showed love to this world in this way that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will have eternal life and not perish. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world this time. <laughs> the first coming was for grace, but in order that the world might be saved through him. That's why he came. He came to give us an option. And then you see this, Second Peter, it's pretty much exactly what we were talking about. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The only reason that we're all not wiped out by the is because God patiently hopes more people will repent. It's pretty cool, I think. It shows his nature. But at the second coming, and we have to remember this, called the day of the Lord in the Old Testament, it's always a day as judgment. Jesus will come and exercise his wrath upon those who are evil, whose sins are not covered by his blood. And this is everywhere. Here's some representative scriptures, but this is everywhere. What is God's wrath? We defined that yesterday, or what was it, Thursday. Um, well, we didn't. John Stott did. <laughs> I love this. This is, this is, you can remember this. God's wrath 
This is God's settled response to evil. Eventually, evil will be settled. And the fact that it's not yet is because of God's grace. And I realize, just like you, you're thinking maybe he's a little more patient than he should be. <laughs> I mean, think about it. You read the Old Testament. He didn't wipe out all those Israelites, essentially, and, and, and exile them to Babylon until 586. I would have done it back 800. But I'm not God. He had his own reasons. So, but eventually this will happen. And I realize, you know, and I, if I bang on this pulpit, it will break. Um, the hellfire and brimstone has a place. Why? Because it's in there. It's true. I've heard people say, well, nobody gets scared into heaven. Well, maybe they don't, but it's in the big, it's the truth is there. I hope, you know, you don't just want to get out of hell. <laughs> I hope you want to know, know Christ because that's what you were created to do. But Romans 5, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him, Christ, from the wrath of God. Ambiguous? Pretty clear. For we were told how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. That's in 1 Thessalonians. A little bit later in John, Three. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Why is this not in people's minds, you wonder? I'm guessing it's not preached very often. Probably should be. Not as the only thing. I don't want to do a sinners in the hand of an angry God. Jonathan Edwards did that. I don't know how it worked out for him. But it's true. And you can say, I don't like it, and it really doesn't make any difference if you like it. <laughs> I'm sorry. It makes a total difference if it's true. There's a lot of things that are true that I don't like. Like rhubarb. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I mean, things in life, think around your life. Is there things in your life that you don't like? But are they true? Now, this without the cross, this without grace, this without the love of God is really bad news. It's, but this is the good news, is that you get saved from the wrath to come. And I don't know about you, but if I read some stories about some things that evil people do to little kids, I don't have too much trouble with the wrath of God coming on them. Whether it's right or wrong, I don't know. I just don't want it coming on me. Right? A little self-serving, but it's out there. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And that's going to happen in the second coming, and that's pretty clear. So what do we do? Well, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Um, so what do we do? Well, you preach the gospel and you try to live it. <laughs> we do all the time, right? So God's attributes, they give us this clear thing. But what's the thing? You see, this is the very first time Jesus comes on the scene, the gospel of Mark and all the other gospels. This makes sense now that Jesus comes and the first word out of his mouth is repent. That makes sense now. If you know God is holy and you know that evil eventually will be settled, 
Repent makes sense. What an offer. I take it up. They also show why he demands that his true followers emulate his goodness. We're in 1 Peter 1. He's called you to be holy, and you are holy in your context since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And how do we do that? What's the little first name of that spirit? Holy Spirit. Mm, ironic. <laughs> I think that's the way we're supposed to do it, through his word and the spirit. And I love this one. I used to have a shirt that had this one. Be imitators of God as beloved children. Well, how do you do that? Well, I would just look at Jesus and let him take you by the hand. It's a good way to imitate. It's called being Christ-like. So we don't deserve God. He's holy, but he desires us. That's really cool. That's the good news, right? The fact that we are lost without him. Not just not finding our way, but not finding our way back to him for eternal life. But if we truly recognize his essence, his greatness, his goodness, who he is, we will understand our need for Jesus Christ and his grace. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that your revelation is clear, precise, exactly what we need. May we treat it as such in our lives. May we be thankful for your word. May we want to be in it. And may we be thankful for your son who gives us exactly what we need at the cross. May we always give thanks for your grace, and try to live a life of gratitude. Amen.